This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn how to control your blood sugar levels naturally with Joel Thuna. We'll find out about the power of forgiveness with Hina Khan. We'll discuss yoga for seniors with Emily Sand. And lastly, we'll discover how to cope with financial trauma with Asil El Baba. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. New research shows that fatty foods may not only be adding to your waistline, but also playing havoc with your brain. The study from the University of South Australia established a clear link between mice-fed a high-fat diet for 30 weeks, resulting in diabetes and a subsequent deterioration of their cognitive abilities, including developing anxiety, depression, and worsening Alzheimer's disease. For centuries, people have been using mindfulness meditation to try and relieve their pain, but neuroscientists have only recently been able to test if and how it actually works. A study conducted at the University of California at San Diego showed that mindfulness meditation interrupted the communication between brain areas involved in pain sensation and those that produce the sense of self. Through mindfulness practice, pain signals still move from the body to the brain, but the individual does not feel as much ownership over those pain sensations, so their pain and suffering are reduced. According to the American Psychological Association, People consistently underestimate how much others in their social circle might appreciate an unexpected phone call, text, or email just to say hello. And the more surprising the connection, the greater the appreciation. So be sure to reach out to that person you haven't spoken to in a while. It means more to them than you think. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Joel Thuna in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to The Tonic Magazine and to the show. Always welcome, sir. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. It is a gorgeous day, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. I'm excited. We're going to do something new later. I'm a tingle. <laughs> Last time we talked about the topic that we're talking about today, which is maintenance of blood sugar levels. We discussed vitamins and nutrients that can help with blood sugar levels. Today, we're going to focus on what we can eat So why is what we eat so important, Joel? Well, the big thing I wanted to hit on today is that 
most people, when it comes to blood sugar and diet for that in general, are confused. They really are. And it's partially because of what we see in the media and what we hear our friends talk about, etc., versus what we actually do and how we live. If you look, for example, the typical Western diet, which most people adhere to more or less, is completely polar opposite to all the expert recommendations, every single one of them. And what ends up happening is what we eat affects our mood, our weight, our disease risk, our energy levels, our complexions, our mobility. Essentially, everything about us is affected by our food. Now, once you look at all that, you wonder why we're eating as a people so poorly. And one of the biggest things you can control with your diet is your blood sugar. It is the primary way you can control it. And most people don't get that. They did a recent poll in the United States and found that half of the people polled, and it was tens of thousands of people, half of the people polled thought that doing their taxes was easier than eating healthy. Hmm. When I read that, my mind just went completely and utterly bonkers because the way I've always looked and been taught to look at food is use logic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like not common sense, just logic. And logically, you should be able to, without relying on any expert, any headlines, anything like that, you should be able to figure out how to eat. Now, with that, with blood sugar and with food always comes the concept of obesity and being overweight. Right. Now, just to understand the scope of the problem, being obese is nasty. It truly is. And if we were having this conversation 25 years ago, it would be rare that you would know someone, I would know someone, or I yeah. would be obese. Right now, almost a quarter of Canadians are obese. And the scarier statistic is 10% of children are obese. You know, I come at this discussion as somebody who formerly was obese and struggles with his weight to this day, right? I mean, as do I. And I can tell you, it was brought home to me because at one point I was probably, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds overweight, which is a good deal. At my heaviest, I was 242 pounds. You know, I was exercising at a gym and somebody said, go and pick up that 45 pound weight. Okay. And I want you to just carry it around for five minutes. Okay. Now, obviously you're carrying it around in your hands, right? So it's, it, it, you know, it, it's different, but it really hits home, you know, what you're doing to your body and how much extra stress you're putting on yourself by simply carrying around extra weight. And you should try it. Like if your doctor tells you you're 20 pounds overweight, go and grab a 20 pound weight and walk around with it for a while. That'll and, definitely and, drive and, and it home. It'll really drive home exactly how much, what you're doing to your body, what you're doing to your skeletal, your muscles, your, yeah. your mind, everything of just carrying around that extra weight. You can't illustrate it any better than that. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Anyways, sorry, I digress. No, valuable. What are the risks of being obese? I mean, I know what they are, but let's scare people because I think it's not cool to be overweight. Essentially, your risk of almost every single degenerative disease increases dramatically. And when I say that, I'm talking heart disease, cancer, diabetes. Those are the big three. Right. But you could keep going down yeah. the list. It's almost everything down to arthritis, joint pain, muscle pain. Scarpinia, 
for example, which is the reduction in your muscle as you age, which leads to many other issues. Well, what about COVID? I mean, yeah. like, what people aren't really talking about is a lot of the people who really suffered with COVID or who passed had pre-existing conditions, most of which were tied to obesity. Yep. And that also affects your liver, your lung, your kidneys, right. all the things that also are affected by COVID. All right. So, you know, I have my own ideas about how our culture and media comes into play. Can I get the ball rolling? I mean, go for it. We work too hard. We don't have a lot of time eating healthy. One thing is true about it. It can be time consuming if you're making your own food. And I think that culture has kind of taught us that that time that we're taking to create the nutritious foods isn't important. And here are some expedites. And those expedites aren't necessarily healthy. So the food that we're getting is truly fast food in every sense of the word, but it's not nutritious food. And I'll agree with that. No question. But that being said, some people have to live in the reality that they're not going to yeah. be able to make their food. So they still have to make healthy choices with what's in front of them. True. Part of that, I think, is actually understanding one of the big things, which is calories. Yep. Everyone hears the word, but most people don't actually know what it means. So what calories are are essentially units of energy that are found in food that your body can use to power you. Right. That's what they are. And every food, essentially other than water, contains calories. Everything. What a calorie is essentially is a unit of energy that when the calorie is burned, your body gets the energy it needs to function. Right. And yes, even thinking, some people say, well, I'm not exercising, but thinking requires energy. Yep. Everything requires energy. Now, the way our bodies are designed from nature is that you have a certain level of blood sugar that you're supposed to maintain. And it's, it's a small range. It's a narrow range. Mm-hmm. And when your blood sugar dips below or at the lower end of the range, you feel hunger. You're supposed to eat a little and bring it back up to still within the narrow range, but higher. So you have enough energy to keep moving and going and doing what you got to do. And then it goes slowly down again as you use it up. And then the cycle continues. Right. Now, if you look, that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. In our culture, as you were saying earlier, it's changed. So now we have three large meals for some of us larger than others that are calorie laden. So what we end up doing is we wait and we ignore the feeling of hunger until it's overwhelming So our blood sugar goes down dramatically, well below the narrow range. And then what we do to make up for it is we spike really high above the narrow range. And it's that cycling up and down and up and down and up and down. And it gets wider and wider and wider the more we eat and the hungrier we allow ourselves to get that causes blood sugar issues. And most people, when you say blood sugar issues, they automatically think diabetes. Right. But diabetes is only one of them. Diabetes is known as hyperglycemia, which means too much blood sugar. And that's only one. The other one is hypoglycemia, which Mm -hmm. is far too low blood sugar. And both are equally dangerous. Hypoglycemia, most people don't know much about. What it can do, it can lead to fainting. It can lead to dizziness. It can lead to confusion. And if it goes on long enough and severe enough, it can actually lead to death. Hmm. And that is as scary as diabetes, just in a very different way. Now, if we're talking about calories, we also have to talk about a macronutrient. There are three macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Now, every carbohydrate contains four calories per gram. Every protein contains four calories per gram. And every fat contains nine calories per gram. And no matter what they tell you, no matter what marketer or news organization or whatever, 
Those are permanent. <laughs> there is no magical carbohydrate that's two calories per gram. Doesn't exist. Never has, never will. Now, your body prefers to use carbohydrates as its fuel source. Because it's more accessible. It's more accessible, it's easier, it's faster, and let's be honest here, blood sugar is a carbohydrate. Right. <laughs> Makes it easy. But in the absence of enough, it will use proteins and it will use fat. What ends up happening is you intake your macronutrients from the food you eat or shakes or whatever, gets into you, your body digests it, and your body goes, okay, I've got enough carbohydrates, I'm going to use them for fuel. Or if you don't have enough, it's like, okay, I'm going to use these carbohydrates, then I'm going to move to protein, then I'll move to fat, etc., etc., etc. Whatever it doesn't use gets turned into, into calorie storage, which we commonly refer to as fat. That's how it happens. So all that being said, what ends up happening and part of the problem is we don't look at how we get the calories and how we use them. Like, calories are a good thing. You need them. Right. The problem is that calorie requirements are based on your sex, your age, and your activity level. And it makes sense because the more active you are, the more energy and calories you need. Right. Let's look at the 51 plus age group. The average man needs 2,000 calories in that age group, and the average woman needs 1,600. At that level, you're using pretty much what you take in, which means your blood sugar will be pretty good and your weight will remain pretty stable. However, when asked, men reported 2,640 calories, so 640 more than they needed, and women reported 1,785 calories, which is 185 more than they needed. Now you think, okay, those numbers aren't nasty. They're not great, but they're not nasty. When researchers actually looked at their journals, mm -hmm. so not what they reported, what they actually did eat, yeah. they found they were under-reporting by at least 25%. Of course, because eating late at night doesn't count, and, <laughs> and, and sneaking cookies don't count, and yeah, for sure. <laughs> I've just heard too many people use phrases like that, like, on your birthday, nothing counts. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We all know how we got there, Joel. Right? Okay, fair enough. Now, how you can modify to help yourself. One, it's the mix, how the mix of your calories affects your blood sugar. What I mean by that is you don't want to take just carbohydrates by themselves. Eating, for example, a piece of white bread, just the white bread by itself will spike your blood sugar higher than if you have the white bread with some cheese. Right. Because having the fat and the protein actually slows down your digestion and absorption of the carbohydrate. And it actually slows the whole process down. And it's the rate of consumption and the rate of absorption that really matter. If you're going to eat, as I said earlier, the multiple small meals through the day, you're going to have much better blood sugar control. Much better. You're going to stay either within or close to within the narrow range. If you consume a ton of calories at the same time, or even say the exact same amount of food and the exact same food as you would have in those six meals in one shot, you're just flooding your body with calories and flooding your body with blood sugar. It's going to spike. Now, by spreading it out, you reduce it and it makes life much easier reducing the spiking. The other thing are the types of carbohydrates you use. There are simple carbohydrates, which easiest way to say it are, they're white processed foods. And they're complex, which are ones that contain fiber. Fiber slows down your body's digestion of carbohydrates. So have the fiber, slows it down, you get the same effect, narrowing the spiking. Now, what you can do 
is you can do four simple ways to get your blood sugar tamed. One is try eating the mini meals through the day. We've already covered that. Second is use more of the calories you take in. Right. It makes sense. If you are using them, you're not storing them. And if you use them while you're taking them in or near when you take them in, they never have a chance to spike your blood sugar. They right. get used, burned. So just move. More activity. Yep. You don't have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. You don't have to do massive bodybuilding, just movement. But that being said, building muscle actually helps burn more calories in the long run, right? It isn't just the exercise you're doing. It's the breakdown and building up of those muscles, which uses more calories going forward. So that's No question. A- Definitely. You are correct. Now, the other one is to change your nutrient mix. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is you want to swap out carbohydrates yes. and swap in protein. Mm-hmm. And the big thing for that is they have the same calorie count gram for gram, but your body doesn't use them as efficiently, so it doesn't spike your blood sugar as efficiently. And what I'm doing today, you get to be a guinea pig. I love it. You are going to try a world's first. You get to try a protein I've been working on for over a decade. Yeah. We are going to let you try the very first packet of purely lemonade protein. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this protein while I'm shaking it and I'm going to pour it out. Okay. Through the magic of radio, (laughs) I'm going to try this. It's a very low carbohydrate, all natural protein. It's whey protein that is lemonade flavored made with real lemons. Okay. So first of all, the lemon flavor is great. I have to say, right? And my experience, I'm not going to call anybody out, but some of the health and wellness products, they're not flavor forward. Let's put it that (laughs) way. You know, they're there for purposes and those purposes are manifest. And if the flavor isn't good for you, so be it. But this is quite tasty. So in a glass, let's say I were having a glass of this lemonade and it's quite delicious. I'm going to have another sip. How many grams of protein am I getting? 15 grams of protein, one gram of carbohydrates, completely natural and zero fat. So as a man in my 50s, what percentage of my protein intake is this helping me with? That's about one fifth to one quarter. But as with any supplement, you always want to get the majority of any nutrient from your diet, from your food. Well, I'm honored to be the first one to try it. It's great. It was in a packet that, you know, didn't have any writing on it. So are we coming to market with this soon, Joel? What's the plan? We're going to be in the market in about eight weeks. And as I said, we just wanted you to be first. Well, I'm honored. It's terrific. If people are interested in finding out about this product, where should they go? To our website, which is purely, P-U-R-E-L-E dot C-A. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And thank you for trying. That was Joel Thuna. For more information about his business, visit purely.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss forgiveness on The Tonic. Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Optican CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosorb pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Optican soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at OptiCan2Ns.ca. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. 
Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hinakon guides and mentors people to work through seemingly unbreakable barriers, whether it be creating quantum leaps in their business or exceeding personal goals. She helps people challenge the thoughts and beliefs that are holding them back. And through extensive work, those thoughts and beliefs are replaced with ones that help to supercharge her client's growth. As a peak performance coach, she's been a student of the mind, human behavior, and human potential for almost two decades. And for more information, you can visit hinacon.ca. Welcome back to the show, Hina. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you. Happy to be here, Jamie. So I have a long memory, and there's no slight that I don't remember. And, you know, one of my flaws, and I have many, I'm a work in progress, is sometimes I'm not so good on moving forward and moving on. I can sort of ruminate and dwell and think about the, you know, the transgressions of others. But we're going to talk about forgiveness today, right? We are. And what I hear you saying is that you can hold a grudge. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was my law. Lo- it was my long-winded way of saying it, but yeah. I can. Right. Well, I I think you're going to love what we're going to talk about today then just as much as the audience. Okay, good. Well, this show is mostly about me. I don't know if you know that. Right. (laughs) Okay. So I know we're talking about therapeutic forgiveness, and maybe you can explain a little bit about what that is. Absolutely. So therapeutic forgiveness is a term that was coined by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. He wrote a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, and he really started self-image psychology. And it is about forgiving and forgetting. Yeah. And I know that that's when people tense up when they hear the forgetting part. Like it was good until we got to that point. But what he's really saying here is that when you're truly forgiving, when it's real and genuine, that is when it's completely forgotten. You have let go. And when you don't do that, when you're kind of forgiving half-heartedly or forgiving with conditions, then it's like you've got this wound, it's an emotional wound, but you're consistently and continually reinfecting it by imagining it, going through various scenarios, playing it out in your head, and holding that grudge. So therapeutic forgiveness is about forgiving and forgetting. Well, when you say therapeutic, it suggests that there's a benefit to you in doing so, correct? Right? Like 100%. Right? So why is it important for us to practice therapeutic forgiveness, like this form of forgiveness? Why is it relevant? It's relevant because it allows you to let go. And it allows the transgression to not rent space in your head. I have to tell you, you know, I was a psychotherapist and I can remember sitting with people, Jamie, and they would be telling me about things that the way they were saying it, you would think it happened last week. We are talking about things that happened decades ago, but it still has a hold on them. So there is a healing that does happen when it is this way of therapeutic forgiveness where you are letting go and you are releasing. You're not carrying this weight around you anymore. Okay, so I'm just going to put on my skeptic's hat for a second. Aren't there benefits to sort of thinking about those transgressions? I'm trying to think of an example. 
but like you learn lessons, right? Like if, yes. if, if you get treated in a certain way, like somebody's done something horrible to you. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it would manifest, but if somebody has wronged you, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can learn from that, you know, like you can't just make the same mistakes. Let's say maybe you're too trusting. I mean, that's certainly not me, but I, I could see there being some benefit in holding on, but this suggests there isn't. Yes and no. Yes, you need to learn the lesson because that's actually what allows you to release it. So you're holding on to the lesson, letting go of the hurt and the upset. It's actually exactly what you said is what allows you to let go because now you can take the lesson because you're right. If we don't learn the lesson, we're going to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So you take the lesson and you take the learnings from it and you let it go and you release the person. And you know what? Can I, if we're really going to get honest here, sure. the person that you have to really forgive is yourself. Sometimes we have to forgive ourselves because we were very trusting when our intuition was alerting us to something otherwise, but we didn't listen to it. But it's easier. The reason this can be so difficult is because it's actually easier to blame the other person or the situation, the event, as opposed to looking at our part in it. And I know this is hard to hear, but if it's on your plate, you ordered it, whether it was conscious or unconscious. So this therapeutic forgiveness is not only about forgiving the other person, it's about forgiving yourself for your part in it and also not beating yourself up either and letting that go and taking the learnings with you. Yeah, but you know, there are horrible people out there who just do lousy things to other people. And, you know, like one's role in their own mishap may be quite minimal as compared to the other person's role. Do you know what I mean? Like, so uh, I guess you kind of have to move past the ratio of blame. I'll put it that way. Like, I I suppose that becomes immaterial then, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It does. Like, it's not about equal or fair necessarily either. It's about your life. It's about your quality of life. Okay. So if you want to, yes, maybe it was minimal. I mean, I've been in things and I've been like, oh my God, like how did that happen? And yes, it would be very easy if any, if I was presenting this case to you, right? it would be very easy probably that many people would say, yes, it was the other person For sure. or the other person did that. And that's great. And that's fine. And I can hold that. Like, forgiveness doesn't mean that the other person is off the hook or right or that there aren't any consequences. Okay. It means that you don't have to carry this with you and it doesn't have to affect the quality of your life. Okay. So if you're practicing this, how's it going to impact your day-to-day life then? So what happens is you could even think about it like carrying a backpack full of rocks. Yep. And they're different sizes, different weights, and they make up all the hurt, anger, and resentment. Mm-hmm. that you've been holding on to for years. Now, what we want to do is start to take out these rocks, each and every one of them. And now we have a backpack with no rocks in them. You immediately feel lighter. You have an empty backpack. You don't actually you actually don't even need it anymore. So even in in this kind of scenario, how are you walking? You're not weighed down. So you're walking more upright you are able to see things in a different perspective because you haven't been weighed down. So when you think about this image of carrying a heavy backpack to not carrying one at all, and you're standing up straighter, you're going to feel lighter, you would have space, you could move around, and you're a lot freer. And so what happens is, honestly, what happens when we're focused on the transgression and the wrong that happened, that's like a kink in the hose for our own flow and what we want to do in our life. And our own goals that we have 
Now you're not now your energy and your focus is not on this thing that happened, but it's on what you want and you moving ahead with creating the life that you want and letting this go. So you're lighter, you're freer, you're more creative, you're nicer to be around too. Yeah. I can't imagine being nicer to be around than I currently then am. Right yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was like very sarcastic. So I would imagine for some people this would be hard to sort of separate their feelings from this desire to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it would be. It, it is. It is. It's hard. Gosh, it's hard because also there is something that we can get out of feeling like we are right in sure. a situation as well. Of course. And sometimes we are like hanging on to that. Like we don't want to put the backpack down because it means that we, we don't have this thing that makes us feel like we are right and the other person is wrong. So the first thing is you've got to ask yourself, are you ready to put the backpack down? Are you ready to let it go? And mm-hmm. if you are, then you start to make a list of anyone in any situation that you feel you need to forgive. And if you're wondering, well, I'm not even sure, then what you can do is think about who comes up to mind or when you're getting, when you're just kind of imagining or daydreaming, are there certain scenarios that come up repeatedly? Then that would be one to work with. And this is where what you said comes in. As you take a look at at each thing, Take the learnings from it, because now you're also, when you're taking the learnings from it, you're reframing it and creating a new memory of the situation. And you can also write those learnings on a separate piece of paper. And you do that so that that is the part that you're going to take with you. It's the learning and everything else you leave behind, including your need to be right. Yeah, including that. Okay. So, and like, it seems to me that if the benefits were manifest, right? Like if you could see the benefits, that in and of itself might be enough to get people to make those changes. Is that your experience with what happens with your clients that once they understand the benefits, it's easier for them to move forward or do they actually need to live those benefits first? You know, it's a bit of both, but what I think what happens is so many times we're arguing for our limitations and our excuses. Right. And once they start to let that go, Jamie, they do see the benefits because, you know, a whole new world opens up to them where they literally can now create. The other thing is, is that that transgression or the many things that have happened, it's controlling them. Like history is still controlling their future then. Right. Because they haven't let it go, because they haven't looked at their part in it, however small it may have been. They're not able to take the learnings from it. So what my clients love is when they do this, honestly, things just get better and better. And they and the first place that they feel better is within themselves because they feel lighter. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. What do you want to talk about the next time you're on? I think that we should talk about self-image. Sounds like a plan. That was Hina Khan. For more information about her, you can visit hinnacon.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss yoga for seniors on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. 
Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Emily San is a certified yoga instructor and holistic health coach in Toronto. She works with clients online and in person, offering private sessions and group coaching. She also happened to write an article on yoga for the July-August issue of The Tonic Magazine. Welcome to the show, Emily. How are you? Hi. Thank you so much. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. So we're going to talk about yoga for seniors, and I know you have some experience teaching yoga for seniors, right? Yes, they are my people. (laughs) (laughs) Your tribe, as it were. Yeah, I started teaching yoga a long time ago, and when I moved to New York City, I did a few trainings, more therapeutics and meditation, and my mentor teacher gave me a client, a private client of hers, and Ellen was about 75 years old, and I started working with Ellen, and then I started working with Ellen's husband, and then I started working with a friend of Ellen's, and by the time I left New York City, I think my age demographic was between 75 and 95 years old. 95, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I had a group of women on Fridays that got together, and it was amazing, and We did just really simple yoga. We did a lot of chair yoga. We did some balancing, some walking in a straight line. It was a lot of fun. It was a great group, and it was wonderful for their health socially and physically to get together and practice together. For sure. And so I know you were sort of teaching yoga through the pandemic. So how did that impact your classes with your senior clients? Well, when we moved to Toronto, I kind of said goodbye to all of my private clients in New York because, you know, online yoga was not a thing. Right. And so, I mean, I keep in touch with them, but I had basically said goodbye to teaching all of my clients in New York. And I moved to Toronto. And when the pandemic started, I reconnected with a few of those clients and we started up again because that was the norm then, right? On Zoom, we just had to figure out how to make it happen. And from there, we got on Zoom and we got back to moving together. Okay, so let's talk a bit about teaching the actual classes and how you deal with a clientele that's, you know, older. How does that work? Do you have to do different types of yoga? And maybe you can explain what that is and the adjustments. And I mean that both in the literal sense and the figurative sense as to how you would deal with an older clientele and older classes. The older clientele is such a great group to work with because they're so committed, I would say. I think when I think about this, I think about it really matters the why. Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why am I inhale reaching my arms up? Why am I doing this range of motion? Why am I doing this strengthening? And from there, you just understand the why and then you get to the how. How am I going to do this? And for my you know, little bit older clients, the how looks a little bit different. And so I think the big thing, you just have to have a lot of modifications and a lot of time and a, not time, but just the ability to pivot and see, oh, 
this isn't working. Well, we can try it this way. That's not working. Let's try it this way. Or, hey, we're going to scratch that for today. We'll come back to that on Wednesday or whatever day it might be. I think the ability to pivot and to have a lot of different modifications in your pocket that you can, let's try this, let's try this, and just patience. And I think a good communication between you and your client that they're saying, hey, I feel this here. Oh, we don't want to feel that. Or, oh, I do feel this here. And you're like, perfect. That's what we're looking for. So the ability to communicate the modifications and just knowing when to pivot and try something different. Okay. Now, do you have any special training or is there such a thing as special training for a senior audience? I know that there's definitely trainings out there for elderly clients. I've done quite a few therapeutics trainings. Right. Okay. And that's been really beneficial. Prema Yoga by Dana Slamp, a teacher that I know you can do online. John Witt is another great teacher online that is doing trainings, I'm sure. I did quite a few therapeutics trainings before that. When you say therapeutics, are you talking about like yin yoga or what are you talking about? Some of it's yin, some of it's restorative, and some of it is just simply modification. And, hey, how do you work with a strap? What do we use blocks for? How do we use this bolster? Like, let's do chair yoga. There's lots of different options. And then, honestly, a lot of it's trial and error. Like, I think I got a great baseline from my teachers, KK Yoga, like, John Witt, again, Dana Slamp, but each person's a little bit different. So it's trial and error and how does this work and how does this feel? So it's that combination that I think important. And I would imagine it's a bit of a skill to sort of make those modifications when you're doing a virtual class, right? Because you're not there to sort of move the body through touch, right? Like, you know, in the classes I've taken, you know, to sort of make sure that the poses are being done properly, an instructor will come by and like, you know, gently adjust you or touch you on the back to give you an idea of how to move. You can't really do that when you're doing it virtually. And I would think there's a lot more modifications when you have perhaps an an older audience that requires it. So was that a challenge or, or how did you broach that? I had to get incredibly clear with what I was saying. I think that is probably one of the biggest things about this Zoom yoga is I can't inhale, just reach your arm. It has to be incredibly specific. Mm-hmm. And I have to know what exactly I want them to do and what it should look like and where they need to feel what they need to feel. So I think that was a big pivot for me during this whole Zoom and online is teaching is wow, I have to be specific and clear, crystal, crystal clear about what I want them to do and have about five ways to say it. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Through analogy or or mental imaging or metaphor. What do you think your clients are getting out of this, your older clients? Like what are the benefits to them that they've told you about or that you can see? Well, I know I've got a couple clients with back issues and they are very clear about their back feels better. They can do things that they couldn't do before, like a day of, you know, gardening or a day of, you know, cleaning out the garage or whatever those things may be that used to take them out for two or three days and tons of Advil. They can do that. They can do the day. They can move their bodies. They can do the everyday things that they need to do without being in pain and without it taking them out and them being unavailable for the next few days, which I think is really important. The other thing is like traveling. And you, you teach people what to do when they travel, little back bends and hip stretches, and the travel doesn't hit them quite as hard. And again, it allows them, most importantly, just to live their life, to be with their kids, their grandkids, and to do the things that they need to do around the house, just a better quality of life. Okay. I don't know how rigorous your classes are. I would imagine, you know, you're scaling it back a fair bit. But is there sort of like a baseline fitness that you would require of somebody if they were going to take your class? For me, my classes are 
about 180 degrees different than what I teach privately. Okay. And so if you're just a beginner yoga, I would definitely think, you know, you've got to find, you know, my dad goes to a class and I can't remember what they call it, the silver or something. And, you know, they're in a chair. You have to, if you're going to do a class, you need to find a class that meets you where you're at. Mm -hmm. And my classes are a bit more challenging, my online classes and my in-person classes, but my private teaching, you could come at any fitness level. And I'll just meet you where you're at. If we're in a chair, great. If we can stand for some of it, great. Can we balance on one foot? Nope. Okay, we're going to use a chair or use the wall. So privately makes it a lot more conducive to meet everybody's fitness level where they're at. In a class, you can definitely find different classes, but you got to search it out and, and, and trial and error, see what works for you. That makes sense. All right. So if we've inspired any of our older listeners to try yoga, what would you recommend for them? What advice would you give them? And how would you recommend that they get started? I would say do a little research, make a couple phone calls, talk to, I don't know whether it's a gym or it's a yoga studio, get on the call and and be very clear with what you want. Do I want chair yoga? Do I want restorative yoga? Do I want to flow? Am I super active and I want to flow? I would get on the phone and and speak to some people and maybe, you know, talk to your friends, talk to people around you about what they're experiencing, the teachers they've enjoyed. And if you want a private instructor, I think word of mouth is such a great way to go. And just know your body, know your limitations and be very clear with your teacher. Hey, my back, I can do this. My shoulder can do this. My hips can do this. Just be very clear, and you may not know exactly what you're looking for, but just be true to yourself, take care of yourself in those classes, and I would say definitely word of mouth is a great place to go. That's how I would go about it. Okay. If you've inspired somebody to try yoga with you, Emily, what would be the best way to get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is to probably email me at emilykasan, S-A-N-N, at gmail.com. And my website is going to be up by the end of next week. And that's emilysan.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. That was Emily San. You can read Emily's article in the summer issue of The Tonic and other great health and wellness interviews and articles by visiting thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to overcome financial trauma on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. 
They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Asil El Baba is the founder of Holistic Optimal Wealth, blending her two disciplines of financial planning and psychotherapy. Asil is committed to helping people improve their bottom line by improving their relationship with money. She's appeared on Breakfast Television, CTV News, Radio 640 Toronto, and is a regular guest contributor to the Conscious Economics podcast. She lives in Toronto with her partner, dog, and baby on the way. Welcome to the show, Asil. How are you? I'm great. It's so great to be here. So today I understand we're talking about a heady topic, which is financial trauma. So for those who don't know, what is financial trauma? Financial trauma essentially is unprocessed memories and emotions that we have around money and finances that stem from as early as our childhood. And the one thing I really want to clarify around the word trauma is it's often misunderstood to be this dramatic and massive event in our lives, when in reality, when we're growing up and we're kids, anything can be traumatic when it leads to a negative emotion. It could be as simple as wanting a toy and not getting it. That could be a cause of a traumatic incident that then perpetuates throughout life. So it's really important to understand that trauma isn't necessarily just the big adversities that we deal with in life, but also the small incidences along the way. Okay, so what are some misconceptions about financial trauma? So the first one being the magnitude of what an event is for it to be considered trauma. So often people associate it with, say, adversity or poverty or growing up with a lot of abuse or things of that nature, which obviously are very traumatic in nature. But like I said, there's other much more minor incidences and things that we would easily dismiss as adults. But while we're developing and our psyche is developing as kids, they leave an impressionable image on us. So, for example, if a kid was growing up in a workaholic environment, that there could be a lot of trauma created as a result of them constantly needing emotional support from their parents and, you know, seeing their parents always busy pursuing their career. Or, you know, kids who grew up around a lot of wealth and, you know, feeling that they're never going to be measuring up to their parents' expectations. And this brings me to the next point because another misconception around trauma is that it's impacting the low socioeconomical factors of people who grew up in, you know, poverty or low-income households. And the reality is, no, trauma affects all of us. It does not discriminate between races or backgrounds or, you know, socioeconomical factors. Financial trauma just doesn't discriminate any of us. It's really something that we're all impacted by, and yet we usually are not aware of. Okay, so you're describing things that happen to kids as they grow up, but then you're terming it financial trauma. Those sound like socioeconomic traumas, right, which could manifest in all sorts of different behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is how does this manifest as financial trauma? So the way it would manifest financially is in in the way it impacts the relationship we have with money, some of the emotions we have towards money, and then the behaviors. So it could lead throughout life to different dysfunctional behaviors we have with money. And and there's a huge spectrum of what that can look like. On one hand, it could manifest itself in becoming extremely avoidant and stressed 
about this topic that you try to avoid it at any cost. It's like the head in the sand type of approach or like the deer in the headlights is another way to look at it, like really avoiding it at any cost. Another approach could be becoming extremely obsessed about it. You know, you choose your career based on the potential money aspects that you can generate and then you become a workaholic and then you're constantly chasing after money. Another behavior could be like gambling or this rush that you feel or you chase after you know, wanting money fast and quick and just constantly looking for these high-risk opportunities. Another way it can manifest itself is mindless consumerism, just shopping and spending money as a way to avoid the pain or the emotions that are uncomfortable that you may be feeling. So this is how some of these traumas, you know, are specifically financial traumas because of the way they manifest themselves in our lives. They could either start as a money wound and then it shows up in our life as a money wound or it could start you know from a you know like you grew up around abuse for example and then you use money as a tool to numb and then it becomes a financial trauma as a result of that do you have any personal experience with financial trauma (laughs) who doesn't (laughs) i i certainly do and it's not easy to start you know navigating this road and, and really uncovering your own but I actually did an exercise. It's a really fascinating exercise that I use with my clients as well. It's called the money egg. And money egg is a derived version of an exercise that was originally called the trauma egg. And the way it works, it uses art therapy as a form to express and surpass our conscious mind to tap into some of these subconscious memories that we have. So what I ask my clients to do and what I did in this case is I draw a big egg And then I start drawing symbols of different memories associated with money throughout my egg from the earliest being on the bottom all the way to the most recent at the top. And every memory, you'd be really surprised what comes up because these are things that you don't even think you're still hanging on to uh, usually. And, And that's why art therapy is a really good form to help us tap into this area of our memory. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things came up for me um, through this exercise. For example, I remembered when I needed a pair of glasses for the first time. My parents took me to the optometrist, like the teachers were telling them, your daughter is coming all the way to like the front of the class to see what's on the board. Right. You know, she probably needs a pair of glasses. And I remember the anger and the frustration my dad felt in that moment with this unexpected expense. He was going through a financial hardship and any unexpected expense during that time was not welcomed. But when I'm a child, like I'm a 10 year old, I started associating like my needs create this like unhealthy and like unfavorable environment. And I started suppressing my needs as a result of that. But also the experience itself going to buy my first pair of glasses, you know, my dad said, just give me the cheapest pair. Mm. And it was like this pair at the back of the, <laughs> of the, um, And in my adulthood, without noticing and without realizing, even when I started making good income and having a successful career, when I go shopping, I was just, you know, automatically going to the back of the store and shopping, you know, what's what's on sale and like shopping for deals and not doing that from a mindful, savvy shopping attitude, but doing that from a unworthiness, you know, feeling unworthy and feeling shame around spending. So this is what trauma does to us. Like it creates these behaviors that are very much seeped into patterns that are unconscious. And once we uncover them, we get a chance to heal, consolidate, and just create better patterns to move forward with. 
So that was a really healing opportunity for me when I realized I was still repeating that pattern way into my adulthood, even though I have means that I can just act differently now. Sure. So if listeners recognize that they are suffering from financial trauma, what are steps that they can take? The first absolutely foundational step is bringing awareness to this, you know, uncovering what these things can be. And this is why it's an uncomfortable process and you need professional support around it. The thing about this is that it's impacting your life, whether you're aware of it or not. It's just becoming aware of it gives you the opportunity to start taking control over it and changing the paradigm and shifting things moving forward. That's why, you know, it's it's a really empowering experience eventually, but at the beginning it could be unsettling because a lot of things can surface as a result of it. So the first step, and I really encourage anybody interested in, in taking a hard look into this area, to support themselves by surrounding themselves with the right professionals, the right mindfulness tools, the grounding tools, so that they're processing the things that are coming up for them, but also finding the right support to move forward. So after you develop the right awareness to what happened and why and how it's impacting you, then there's different strategies depending on what's uncovered. Some strategies could be a bit more practical in style, that is more like the bricks and mortars of money, cash flow management, etc. And others could be just emotional, releasing emotional patterns that are stuck, shifting mindset, money mindsets that are limiting. So like I said, depending on what's uncovered, then the action steps after are determined. Okay. And what does it look like when you're healed? Like, how do we know that we're not suffering from trauma anymore? Or how do we cope with I that trauma? I love this question so much because one of the most humbling things I came to realize is that this is on some level a lifelong journey. <laughs> right. And I, I tell this to my clients all the time. And I actually share very vulnerably on my own social media and like with my own circle of friends and family. I constantly lead with the saying that even though I'm a financial therapist, I do this for a living. I personally still uncover and work through and continuously evolve my own relationship with money. There's no such thing as, okay, now I'm healed. Like, as long as I'm living, there's work to be done. And that's, I feel, like the more philosophical nature of how this life works and why we're here. Because every single milestone in life is going to help surface some of the wounds that you potentially may still hold on to. Like, now I'm pregnant, expecting my first child. And some of the things that I'm uncovering as I prepare for this stage are things I would have never known I'm still holding on to. For example, uh, you know, what to buy for my baby, you know, going on maternity leave and losing, you know, a significant portion of my income and feeling like I have now to depend on my husband financially. And all these different things that I'm now dealing with that I wouldn't have otherwise realized how they would impact me unless I'm going through this phase. So every single stage in life is going to bring new things to uncover, but approaching it, like once you're on this journey, you now embrace these challenges and you take them on with an open heart and in a way that, you know, you're committed to growth versus fearing them and looking the other way and shoving them down and pretending they're not there. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Hina Khan, Emily San, and Asil El Baba. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.